Hi there, and welcome to the Subvert podcast for activist citizens. I'm Meryl Kalili, and in this episode, I'm talking to Miguel Duarte. He's a young migrants' rights activist who helped save 14,000 people and faced 20 years in prison for it. Let's rewind to 2016. We've got the peak of the EU migration crisis with tens of thousands of migrants from Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia and other countries becoming stranded in the Mediterranean Sea, trying to reach Europe on small vessels unfit for purpose. So using a converted fishing boat, Miguel and his team saved thousands of desperate people from the sea. But his mission came to a halt when the Italian government charged him and his crew with aiding illegal immigration. Miguel has a fascinating story with many insights that are worth hearing. It was a privilege to chat to him. If you'd like to get in touch, the email address is podcast at subvert.org. That's S-U-B-V-R-T dot org. And the show notes are at subvert.org slash podcast. OK, let's get to it. I'm Miguel. I'm, I'm Portuguese. I'm a physicist. I live close to Lisbon. And I've been involved in the struggle for migrants' rights in Europe since the summer of 2016, when I joined my first search and rescue mission in the central Mediterranean, uh, a fishing ship that started really that summer to operate. And the, we, I basically joined a crew of young volunteers from, from s- uh, several different places in Europe that didn't see themselves represented in the, in the, the EU migration policy, right? Well, like, what's the situation in 2016 that's causing large numbers of people to try to cross the Mediterranean to enter Europe? So a, a lot was happening back then for, for several different reasons. I guess if, if I have to point out two or three specific events that were most significant, I would say, well, the war in Syria definitely contributed to a huge influx of people from the Middle East into Europe through several routes. Also, the beginning of the civil war in Libya caused enormous instability in a country where almost half of the population was already people from sub-Saharan African countries that lived in relative poverty. So, so you know, when, when the war starts, those are the first people to flee. And so those two routes kind of picked up just a few years after those two wars started. For a while, the Italian government were rescuing people from the sea. And this was before you volunteered. Tell me a little bit about that and why that operation fell apart and they ended up just leaving people to drown, essentially, trying to come over to the EU. Yeah. So in the, in the central Mediterranean, which is the route where I was most involved, numbers were picking up quite a lot by, by 2013. And it was a decision by the European Union to start a, a military rescue operation in the central Mediterranean. So it was funded by the EU, but then it was operated by the Italian Navy. And this operation was called Mare Nostrum. And I mean, it had huge means. We've never seen anything like that since. And I'm not entirely sure that we'll see it again, because over the course of a year, so I think from October 2013 to October 2014, Mare Nostrum was responsible for rescuing more than 150,000 people. Huge numbers. And and what happened then was, so only a year after the, the beginning of this operation, several states in Europe started pressuring for the cancellation of this operation. And in the end, it was replaced by a Frontex operation. Frontex is sort of the border guards of, of the European Union. So the, 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 the main purpose of this operation was, was border control and not rescue. And this is 
huge, right? Also, it was much less funded than the, than the first one. And what this resulted in is, again, shipwrecks by the hundreds, people dying by the hundreds already in 2014. So because of this, civil society started organizing and put together, you know, fundraising projects to fund small ships to get to go to the Mediterranean. They got crews together and they started rescuing people themselves. I'm looking at some stats here. It says that w when Mary Nostrum was terminated and, and superseded by this Operation Triton from Frontex, which was, as you say, very much less funded, they weren't able to, inter to enter international waters, which Mary Nostrum did. And the death rate among migrants, sadly, between 2014 and 2015 increased tenfold as a result of this, this change of policy. So uh, you were just saying how NGOs stood up to, to fill that gap. Tell me about what civil society was doing to rescue migrants. Yeah, so, so these, these groups started getting together. And, and I would say, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for everyone, of course, involved in, in civil rescue, but I would say that this is definitely a word that has two sides to it. It's not, I mean, these groups came up first as humanitarian organizations, but they went there with a very specific political goal in the sense that from the start, these organizations, most of them were, were very critical of the cancellation of this rescue operation by the, by the European states and were basically going not only to rescue the people themselves, but also as a means of protest saying, we are here but uh, we'd rather not have to be. And it's like the ideal situation is that the states fulfill their duty to rescue people at sea. And so it, I think it was in 20, the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, that the first organization started. And I only joined in, in, in 2016, this, this small ship called the Uventa. Explain to me a little bit about the asylum policy of the EU, because if I understand correctly, asylum seekers in the EU need to be physically present to request asylum. So they need to come to an EU country in order to do that. And yet there are no means for them to do that easily. So they end up having to get on a dinghy and cross choppy waters to get to the EU, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are, to be very strict about this, there are resettlement programs from countries outside the European Union to the European Union itself, but these are accessible to a very, very reduced number of people. And, and so effectively, you know, for, for the large majority of the, of the people, this is just not uh, an option. So basically what, what people are left with is paying enormous amounts of money, typically a lot more than they would pay even for a flight, you know, for a safe flight to a, a European airport, just so that they're able to set foot on the European shore and be able to file for asylum, right? Because otherwise they just cannot do that. And. You know, international law protects the right right of people to to, to ask for asylum. But if I if I cross the border illegally and I'm physically in another state, the state has to has the duty by international law to to consider my application. Let's say there's a lot of things wrong with with the asylum procedure in Europe, and it's definitely one thing that then kind of feeds all of the networks of human trafficking across all of these countries and into the European Union, right? Because People will migrate. People have migrated since the beginning of times for different reasons. People will do that, regardless of the policies that we have in place. Now they can do it safely or they can do it unsafely. And it's up to us to choose which options to give them, right? And if we're taking away the legal options, then uh, they will be left with the illegal options and the dangerous routes to Europe. 
this is what feeds all of these networks that then end up profiting and, and even fueling civil wars like in Libya. Okay, so it's 2016. There was about 5,000 people a day, which sounds unbelievable, mostly from Syria. And because of the collapse of this Mare Nostrum program, creating a, a situation where many more people die, you volunteer and join this NGO. Take me through that. I found out about this organization uh, that ran the event up back in, in July 2016, and they were halfway through their first mission. They had been on the water for a week, and they had participated in the rescue of like a thousand people. A group of, let's say, 12 or 13 youngsters, most of them are not professionals at what they're doing, right? So this, this means two things. This means something is terribly wrong, that, that these people have even the, the possibility of doing something like this. It just means that there's no other option for the people who are uh, fleeing. And, and it also means I have to be a part of this somehow. I have to, mm -hmm. to contribute somehow. So I, I reached out and I, uh, fortunately, they were looking for crew back then. And then I, I joined and just kept learning and doing as I, as I went. There were different approaches that you could have taken, though, to tackle this particular problem. What some people were doing, for example, was to lobby the EU in order to restart that program. Did you consider those approaches? Yeah, very much so. I mean... But I, I think the two things are not mutually exclusive. Actually, they help one another in the sense that these NGOs, even the, the visibility given to us by the work that we do can be used as a tool to get to, to policymakers, right? To get to people who can actually make a, a significant change. So, so there's, there's these two sides to the work, right? There's certainly the political work that needs to be done and fundamentally is the most important thing to be done because it's the only thing that can achieve long-term change. But then... Also, in the meanwhile, people need to be rescued. We can't just watch thousands upon thousands of people losing their lives and cross our arms and do nothing, right? The, the best we can do with the means that we have is to decrease somehow the suffering, right? We won't solve the problem with sea rescue, that's for sure. If I understand right, you, you're, you're sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean. How do you know when there are people in the area? I mean, does it show up on a radar? So what we did was we bunkered the ship. We stocked up on, on food and water and we would go down south. We would take, we, back then we were based in Malta, so we would take around 24 hours to get to, to the, the region where we, we, we were most likely to have to find distress cases. And, and then we would stay there for about two weeks, uh, three weeks. The majority of the distress cases that we found were signaled to us by the Italian Maritime Rescue Coordination Center. So that's an institution that belongs to the Italian states. All of the, all, many, many states have such a thing and, and it has the responsibility to coordinate the rescues in a certain parts of international waters, let's say. And back then our cooperation was, our cooperation with, or their cooperation with us was uh, at least, at least it, it, it was going on, you know, it happened. So they knew we were in the area. They knew that we were a rescue ship and they would, they would, when they got the information from an airplane or a helicopter or a warship or whatever in the area, they would see where we are and ask us, call us and, and ask us to, to, to rescue. And we did just that, you know, because that was what we were there to do. Nowadays, things are a lot different. The political landscape in Italy changed the locks. I mean, it changed in, in the whole wide Europe, but, but specifically in Italy, that's, that's what affects us the most. And cooperation with authorities has been just declining and declining over the years. And, and, and sadly, we're, we're not informed so much about the, the cases, so we need to many times to just find them by ourselves. 
You saved about 14,000 people during your time with Jugend Red at the um, German NGO. How many missions was that? I think that's around eight missions in, in, in 2016 and about eight as well in, 20, in 2017. I remember like my last mission on the Juventa, over the course of two weeks, we, we participated in the rescue of, of 3,700 people. Yeah, we're in a very small ship, right? It's not like we fit everybody in the ship. That, that, that's not even possible. But as, as I said, back then, cooperation with Italian authorities, it worked a lot more. And as soon as we had people rescued, most of the times there was a, a Coast Guard ship or a warship that would pick the people up safely and bring them safely to, to European shores. Ah, so it wasn't, it wasn't always your boat that was taking the people to the coast, right? Back then, back then it almost never happened yes. because we, we had this... We had this cooperation with with. I the understand. Okay. Yeah. I Nowadays, it it happens. I see. Gosh, and how did that feel? How did it feel when you saw your first boat of people fleeing their country, knowing that that boat probably wouldn't make it to the shore? Yeah, I, I remember my first rescue quite well. Actually, naturally, I had almost no idea of what was going on, and when we got there. It was a, a small boat, relatively easy uh, rescue operation, small wooden boats at high seas. The engine wasn't working uh, and the people had been in the water for roughly two days under the sun, super dehydrated, and they all thought they were going to die. Uh, there were uh, Christians from Nigeria, mostly. And when they saw us with the life jackets and the helmets and the rescue equipment, all of them just started crying and they started singing a hallelujah song. Well, uh, it was very emotional moments. Uh, and um, yeah, we, we were able to bring them all safely on board the ship. And it, I just felt like, you know, it was not even midday and it had already been the most useful day in my entire life. So I, I felt like, like this is what I want to do. And, and so I did as much as I could possibly do until I was stopped in August 2017. Right. Tell us about that. The case against you and the ensuing smear campaign by the establishment against you personally and against several of your fellow crew members. How did that start? So it started abruptly in August 2017 when our ship was forced to port in Lampedusa in Italy by the Italian authorities. And when we got there, the crew was forced to, to leave the ship and the ship was seized by the Italian police. And they we were informed that there was an investigation ongoing whose target was specific members of the crew, but we didn't know who back then. They didn't inform us of that. And the suspicion was three suspicions of crimes, let's say. One was uh, human trafficking, another one was aiding and abetting illegal immigration, and another one was possession of firearms. We couldn't decide which was the most absurd. So you, at this moment, were being accused of being a human trafficker? Basically, yeah. And also carrying firearms, I mean, on a humanitarian ship. So then we did what you'd expect somebody to do in this situation. We tried as much as we could to to get the ship back on the water as quickly as possible because we knew how needed it was. You know, we knew that people were dying when we were there. So, you know, people, more people would die if, if you decreased the number of rescue assets present in the Central Med, right? So we tried and tried, but, but we couldn't, we couldn't uh, really do it. And the ship has ceased to this day, actually. And then about a year later, in 2018, June 2018, myself and nine fellow crew members started getting letters in our mailboxes 
in guiding us of aiding and abetting illegal immigration. So the human trafficking and the and the possession of firearms were were dropped. But still, the absurd accusation of of aiding illegal immigration persisted, and it's a crime that just by itself, by Italian law, could lead each of us to twenty years in prison. So they seized the boat, and then you're just sitting there for a year waiting to find out what's going on, and then they alert you to tell you that you're being charged with uh, aiding and abetting illegal immigration. And this is the beginning of a case that took several years to resolve, right? Yeah, it's not resolved yet. Even. Yeah, so after 20, 2018, we were, so the 10 of us were officially under investigation. We got a lawyer to start preparing the defense, but we still had to wait around three years that the investigation was concluded. And the and formal charges were, were brought against the crew members. And in that moment, actually, not the 10 of us were accused. I'm off the hook, uh, for example, along with five other crew members. So four uh, of us were formally accused, mainly because they were in leadership positions. So they, they were captains and heads of mission. But the absurd charges persist. And, that, and uh, indeed, the, the, the preliminary hearing will be in about a month, in, starting in, in Sicily, in Italy. For the remainder. So what, what kind of evidence did they have? How did they concoct this case against you? Using what? There was an enormous amount of information, and it actually surprised us very much because many of our phones were tapped, for example, so our, our, our conversations were overheard. The ship was bugged as well, so conversations on the ship were, were overheard as well. And there was even an undercover agent in another NGO there to, to take pictures and to kind of monitor our actions. So they'd been building this case against you for some time. I mean, you were actually operating while they were building the case against you. Absolutely. Almost since the beginning of the operations of, of, of the event. And now we know that the investigation was actually started by some people who had connections to Lega from Salvini. Matteo Salvini, far-right Italian politician, and uh, Lega, the, the Northern League party, his uh, far-right party. Okay, go on. And they were actually kind of instructed by Salvini himself to, to monitor us so that the, some, that some investigation of this sort could, could start. So there's probably thousands of hours of, of conversations overheard and of pictures and stuff like that. And I, I read all of the files that were given to us upon the seizure of the ship. And there's so much information that's completely taken out of context so that it kind of smears our image, let's say. And, and another huge indication that, the, that that was indeed the ultimate goal is that as soon as the ship was seized and we were informed of the investigation, all of these documents were leaked to the main Italian newspapers as well. Right? So a lot of the information, we were actually, you know, we were the targets of this investigation, but we were getting the information through Italian newspapers. Our full names, our pictures were disclosed in, in newspapers. I'm pretty sure this is illegal under Italian law, but, but still it's, it's done. Italy was going through this moment in which migration was, was the hot topic, right? And uh, you had lots of far-right parties just going on and on about the, the, the problems of migration and the, and the invasion that we're uh, subjected to and that the Italian public shouldn't have to stand for this and all of that. And then at the right moment, when you publish news in the, in the newspaper saying, ah, actually, these NGOs that you thought were only the good guys rescuing people, preventing people from dying at sea, they're actually in, in bed with the devil. You know, This is something that resonates in people's minds when they're in a situation like this. So you don't even need proof to get judged by the public, right? 
And the proof of what I'm saying is, is that basically all NGOs that acted in that area back then were then, you know, we were just the first case. All of them were accused or investigated of similar crimes, and nobody to this day has been convicted of anything. This was a method, right? This was uh-huh. uh, what people call lawfare, right? It's basically instrumentalizing the, the judicial system to serve a political goal, because in the end, nobody was proved to be guilty, right? So there has been no compelling evidence of any wrongdoing by any of these organizations. You know, you, you could even say that maybe there's some people who are doing something wrong. None have been convicted to this day. But when this whole thing started, you were the first one, right? That must have been awful for you. You must have thought, my God, I, I just came here to help people. And now I could potentially be facing 20 years in an Italian prison. Take me through that mental process a little bit, like what was going on in your head. Well, we we knew a lot of powerful institutions and people did not like what we do particularly. But honestly, I, I was not expecting at all an outcome like this. And, you know, when I get a letter in my mailbox that I don't understand because it's written in lawyer language, and I show it to a lawyer and the lawyer says, you're facing the possibility of 20 years in prison, you get, you get at least a couple of sleepless nights there. But then I got together with the rest of the people who were indicted and got together with, with other NGOs who were it, it, from, from the start completely ready to support us in whatever they could. And, and then we, we started creating a campaign to, to inform people about this, about the situation and also to, to fundraise for the legal defense. And all of that went so well. We got a, such a big response from the, from the public. In, in most countries in Europe, but also outside Europe, we got thousands and thousands of people donating and showing support and institutions. Even we got human rights awards and stuff like that with the goal of shedding light on the topic that at some point that together with seeing all of the other NGOs being subjected to accusations like, like this, we, we immediately felt that, you know, this, this is part of the fight. This is part of the political fights. And if, if we went to the Mediterranean in the first place, not only to rescue people, but also to change politics so that these people don't have to die, this is the same fight. We're now fighting against criminalization of people who are trying to help people who don't want to die, right? But how did you raise all that awareness? Wasn't there a risk that anything you do or say could compromise your case? How did you put those mechanics in action to, to be able to get all that support? Yeah, so there, there was that risk, right? And we were warned countless times of, of that risk. And we knew how easily it was already to take anything we say out of context and make it look bad, right? That, because that's exactly what was used against us. So there was that risk. But also, I would say there's a moral imperative. There's a moral obligation to tell the story. Not because our, our case is super special. It's not. It's, it's because it describes quite well the situation in which we find ourselves in terms of European migra- migration policy. To, to me, it's, it lifts the veil on a very important thing, which is that people are not dying because the, the European states refuse to help. People are dying because there are intentional policies put in place to make that happen, right? I'm not saying that the ultimate goal is, is for people to die, but I'm saying that's the direct and intentional consequence of the, of the, the policies put in place right now. Right? Fortress so, Europe. Exactly. So this is this is part of a wide spectrum of measures that that have been implemented, not only in Italy but but across Europe. Hundreds of activists and and humanitarian workers have been uh, prosecuted and are still facing enormous trials that hopefully will end up in 
and people, you know, being declared innocent. And as a tactic, it's pretty effective, isn't it? It stops you doing what you're doing, puts you in a, in a defensive mode, a, a need for fees. It's technical. You need expertise. You need the right people on board. It's not something that you can just resolve with a couple of social media posts or a smart campaign. To be honest, I, I think there was a clear message sent by European states to the, the humanitarian workers doing this, this kind of work. In Greece, in Italy, in France, in Malta, in, in a lot of different countries, there was a very clear message, which was, if you don't stop doing this, there will be serious consequences, legal consequences and all, and all that, right? So the message was conveyed and was understood. You see, so back in 2018, because of, mostly because of this problem, there were practically no rescue ships available in the central Mediterranean. So, and people were dying, right? In 2019, Doctors Without Borders, for example, they had canceled all their operations sometime earlier because the, that ship Aquarius was seized in France uh, for some absurd accusations by the Italian government that then the, the, the French police helped out with, with the whole seizure and everything. They canceled the operations. But then in 2019, they decided to go back to the sea, get a bigger and better ship and, and go back. And the, back then the statement was something like, we've made our choice. We are determined to, to render uh, assistance to whoever needs it. And we're not alone because civil society in Europe is mobilizing. This is what they said. Some, you know, not, not the exact words. And, but the, and they were right. I mean, if, if, if in, in 2018, there were practically no ships right now, you have, I, I can't even count them off the top of my head, but something like eight or nine ships from several countries in Europe are, are doing actively missions in the, in the central Mediterranean. And that means hundreds, maybe thousands of activists and, and humanitarian workers going back to the sea. That means 10 times or a hundred times that people donating to get these ships on the water because that costs a lot of money, right? So. There is resistance, and if you if you look closely to what's happening in the front line, and, and I'm talking about the central Mediterranean, but this is, the, this is the same in Greece, right? All of the NGOs, all of the activist groups, all of the collectives were doing protests and and showing solidarity. You you can see this all around. People are resisting. People are resisting. People understood the consequences and still are are ready to to face them. You know. So the response was kind of well, okay, you can try and take one of us down, but we'll come back with a hundred more, and you can't take us all down. Yeah, I see. Okay, so so what happened? Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned crowdfunding. How much money did you manage to get to together for your legal defense? I saw a figure of fifty thousand a couple of years ago. I think that, that you managed to crowdfund, or we, I... we 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 managed to crowdfund fifty thousand in a specific campaign we made in Portugal, but we got a lot more than that in other countries. So in, oh, in yeah, it's so specifically in Portugal we got we got just above that I think, which which is absolutely amazing. But we got a lot more than that in, in, I don't, I can't tell you numbers already, already. Okay. I, I don't remember no them, but in, you know, in Germany where uh, most of the crew members were from, we got a, we got a lot more than that. We did a lot of communication work there and, and it, it's not even that we did such a great job at, at communicating this, right? It's, it's that the, first of all, the story is outrageous and second of all, people are ready to help. And that's what's inspiring about the whole thing. And soon after the case was uh, dropped against you, you went back out onto the seas, right? And this is what you're doing. Yeah. So in March last year, the investigation was, was concluded and I was let go together with five others. And we decided to, to go back to the sea. We, we talked to Sea-Watch, as I said, another German NGO that's rescuing in central Mediterranean. And they decided to to invite us to be part of their cruise. And since then, I've been on two rescue missions. 
So in April and May last year, and also in November and December. Yep. And what are the numbers like now in, in terms of people coming over? So in the beginning of COVID, numbers decreased uh, slowly when they, so numbers of successful crossings, let's say, because the numbers of departures are very hard to pin down, right? Because nobody's watching. And then they started increasing again. And, and the, so from 2020 to 2021, there was a significant increase. And, and again, it seems like 2022 is going to be uh, a lot higher than 2021. I've got some stats in front of me here. It's from the European Parliament. It says that 2020, there was 125,000 detected, quote, illegal border crossings, unquote, in 2020. Um, majority, as, if was a, as if there were legal border crossings in this Yes, case. yes. Majority, well, from, from other countries, but, but the, the largest country represented is Syria, people of Syrian nationality, and then Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and Turkey. So if somebody is listening to this and they're not deterred by the fact that there was a case against you and, and that you were in legal limbo for several years and had to crowdfund your way out of it. How could they get started? What would you recommend to someone who wants to be active in this, in terms of resources, points of contact, or, or anything that can make a difference in the short term? Where is help most needed? I'd say... So as, as we've been saying a couple of times already in this, in this interview, and then that is the most important message, I suppose, the problem is political, right? And it will only change with politics in the, in the long run. And so to be honest, I believe that, you know, for, for common people like us, the way to get started is to get organized, basically to, to, you know, get together with the local collectives that treat the topics related to human rights, to borders, to migrant rights, and all of this stuff, you know, and. That's, you know, getting in contact with the people who are in contact with this, with this topic, not only the refugees themselves and the, and the migrants themselves, but also people who've been helping and, and showing solidarity for years. It's, it's meeting those people every day that you, that you learn most about, about all of this. And that's where you see where it could be the most useful as well. Are there any specific organizations or umbrella organizations or networks that people could search for? If not, it's fine if they don't come to mind, but I'm just trying to think of names that people could Google for in order to immediately get yeah, active. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I can name, I can name a few, I suppose in, in, in Germany, in Germany, there's a lot of rescue organizations and, and all of those, you know, it would be useful to that people contact it, contact them and, and offer help. But there's also this organization called Zebkuk, uh, it's Seabridge uh, in German, and they do a lot of advocacy work. They do protests. They do a lot of work regarding this topic. In, in Portugal, for example, I work with a collective called Hub Humans Before Borders, and we do the same type of work on a, on a smaller scale, you know, advocacy kind of work. We talk to, to, to people who, to policymakers. And we, when we talk to people and we organize protests, we organize actions, awareness raising, fundraising and stuff like that. So in Spain, for example, there's, there's a, a big NGO called Open Arms. They do a lot of very professional rescue work and and certainly they do a lot of a lot of a lot of work other work as well background work so all of those are are extremely useful ways to go and and to, and to get started okay cool well we'll find links to those organizations and put them in the description i have a bonus question for you actually but it's not necessarily related to this or maybe it is just two or three books that you might recommend it could be anything really but but ideally related to 
the kinds of topics that we've been discussing today. Well, I've, 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 I've been recommending this book a lot. It's, it's called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. Rebecca is a, an activist from, from the US. She's been involved in a lot of anti-war protests and, and stuff like that. And, and this book is a little bit like a text written for tired activists, I would say. So basically people who need that hope in the dark, they, because it's, it's easy to, to get lost in all of the bad things that are happening, right? I mean, when you get into this kind of work, you see the powers that are around you and that prevent you from, you know, creating the world that you would want to live in. And, and all of that at some points necessarily will look a lot bigger than what he could possibly change. And it probably is. But the, the text is like, a, offers a different way to look at history, all of the positive social change that we've had in the past uh, decades and, and it kind of sheds the light on how much activism was needed to do that and how dependent on activism that was all of that, you know, let, let it, whether it is the women's vote, for example, abortion uh, rights, you know, all of this positive social change that we've had in the past uh, years and, and how much it depended on common people, you know. So that, that would be my, my suggestion, I suppose. Great. Thank you for that. Noted. I think that wraps it up. Thank you very much for your time, Miguel. That was really interesting, really inspiring. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to the Subvert podcast, and I was talking to Miguel Duarte. If you'd like to get in touch, the email address is podcast at subvert.org. That's S-U-B-V-R-T dot org. And the show notes are at subvert.org slash podcast. And while you're there, please sign up for the newsletter that goes out every week. See you next time. Thank you.